The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, creating new challenges and opportunities to defend against sophisticated attacks. At Northrop Grumman, we provide a wide range of capabilities to stay ahead of these threats. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com backslash cyber. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Weeks after the meeting in Geneva, where President Biden laid out cyber red lines for his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, a Russian group called either R-Evil or Revel launched one of the largest ransomware attacks on record, demanding some $70 million to unscramble files that it had locked up. A group linked to the Revel gang, was involved in a ransomware attack on the JBS uh, Meat uh, Company uh, in Memorial Day that netted the group $11 million just days ago. However, Revel or our evil abruptly went uh, went dark, prompting speculation whether it was forcibly shut down by U.S. cyber operators, dissolved itself, or was dissolved by the Russian government. What does the ransomware attack mean? How does the United States and its allies have to respond? And what's next? Joining us with some answers are Dmitry Alperovich, the co-founder and former chief technology officer of cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike, who is now the co-founder and executive chairman of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, John Cofrancesco of Fortress Information Security, and Justin Sherman of the Atlantic Council Think Tank, who just authored a new paper, Reassessing Runet, Russian Internet Isolation and Implications for Russian Cyber Behavior. Justin is also a contributor at Wired Magazine, and all of you guys have been kind enough to join us in the past. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our coverage of naval warfare. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And General Motors Defense sponsors our technology uh, coverage. Uh, Dimitri, a uh, great piece in the Post uh, last week. What do you make of the our evil uh, strike. Uh, this is a little bit like, uh, you know, John um, earlier was saying this is either like UBL or OBL when you're talking about Osama bin Laden. But basically, it's the it's the same thing. Um, you know, what's what's next? What's next for the U.S.-Russia relationship? What's next for uh, ransomware and, and U.S. policy, given that the U.S. government is looking at all manner of responses? And, and in fairness, right, President Biden said we will respond at a time and place and ferocity of our choosing. Where are we now and where are we going? So that's a great question. I think we're reaching a breaking point here, um, if nothing else, than in terms of our domestic politics. Uh, this week, there is actually going to be a White House briefing for all senators and all congressmen on ransomware. That tells me one thing. I don't necessarily think that they're going to disclose anything sensitive to 535 people, um, half of whom uh, are from the opposing party that are opposed to their policies. But I do think it's a reflection of how uh uh, important this issue has become for the domestic politics. Um, and the White House is appreciating that President Biden needs to do something here. Uh, we can't have a continuation of these attacks where small businesses, pipelines, meat processing plants, and the like are getting taken down uh, by these ransomware attacks, many of which originate from Russia. So um, as, as we've argued in our Washington Post piece, this is a time to get strong with Vladimir Putin. There's a lot of issues we have with Russia on many fronts, including on cyber, but this is the one issue that is starting to eclipse everything else, literally everything else, because of its impact on the average American. And since President Biden uh, had run on the policy for uh, foreign policy for the middle class and, and protecting the middle class, this is the issue right up his alley 
to try to deal with and to articulate to Vladimir Putin that we cannot tolerate this much longer and that we expect action. And there is one person on the planet that can actually shut the, these things down. And that is Vladimir Putin and his security apparatus. Do, do you have any sense whether or not uh, this was right? I mean, there was a lot of speculation about what happened. Uh, I know your sources in this matter are better than than mine. What do you think happened? Did these guys just pack up because they got the money they wanted, right? I mean, why not? They can incorporate themselves in several forms. Was this uh, Moscow putting pressure on the group? Uh, or was this something that, you know, the U.S. either delivered a message to Moscow to shut these guys up or did we shut them up? What, what's your sense on what happened? Yeah. I, I, I don't think this was U.S. or its allies taking action. I, I don't think there's any evidence of that. And it doesn't look like these servers were hacked or, or they were seized in any fashion by law enforcement. Um, I also um, don't believe that um, this is Russia applying pressure on these groups just yet. Um, we are in the middle of negotiations with Russia. I don't think they would act prematurely before trying to extract some concessions in those negotiations. And in fact, the spokesperson for um, the Kremlin has said that he doesn't know anything about this. Um, so I do think the most likely scenario is that it's uh, somewhere in Russia. It's uh, Moscow is getting very, very hot. And these groups, um, or at least uh, this group of Revol, decided to pack up shop and maybe go to the Black Sea and uh, spend some millions um, that they've just acquired down there um, while they uh, sort of wait things out and, and uh, the heat uh, gets a little bit lower, as they, as they might hope. And then they come back in, in the fall and resume, perhaps under a different brand now. Justin, uh, walk us through your report. Uh, and and what do you think are some of the takeaways from this and where you think we go next? Yeah, so the report, uh, as you mentioned from the title, talks about the Russian domestic internet, specifically a law that Putin signed in May of 2019 that went to uh, went into effect uh, in November of that year. That's the so-called domestic internet law, essentially uh, saying that the Russian state wants to develop the capability to isolate the internet within Russia at will in the event of some kind of quote unquote security incident. So uh, there's been a lot of reporting about this law uh, in the general sense, not a lot on the specifics. And so that's really what the report gets into is the number of stumbling blocks the government has faced in putting this into practice. Um, but really, uh, what the report does, I think that's a little different, is it ties these pushes for this domestic internet to Russian cyber behavior. Um, and the reason I think we have to do this is that uh, even though the Russian government has long faced technical challenges in controlling the internet domestically, we saw, for example, uh, from 2018 to 2020, a pretty persistent failure to block citizens from accessing Telegram. Uh, for example, there was some stuff with the Twitter throttling earlier this year. Even though that they face these stumbling blocks and, and continually have these issues, there are still changes occurring to the actual infrastructure of the internet within Russia in the process of pursuing um, this internet isolation goal, such as adding more deep packet inspection tech to networks. And so all to say, as this happens, I think it's important to at least ask the question of what further internet isolation might do to change uh, or shift cyber activities coming from within Russia if that connectivity um, decreases. But the significance here, I think, with recent events 
uh, is twofold. Really, one is that we need to have a cohesive view of the Kremlin's internet um, and cyber strategy. And two, even though these conversations on Russian domestic internet policy are typically separated from those that we have on cyber ops, there are many important links and relationships between the two. Internet isolation, as I mentioned, even if not achieved, matters for cyber operations because of what a push to change the architecture will do to the internet in Russia. Um, and here, for example, even with the recent ransomware attacks, we can't really talk about non-state groups and the dynamics with the Kremlin without also discussing the control that the Kremlin does and does not exert over tech companies domestically as part of its internet um, control regime to also, you know, there's a lot of connections there that I think we can we can pull out. Um, I'm, I want to get a little bit deeper into some of the ways we can counter it and, and Dimitri's view about whether or not we have as clear a picture of what uh, Russian cyber strategy is. But, John, um, I want to go to you. Um, you, uh, Fortress, uh, just signed uh, an agreement with the Global Business uh, Alliance, obviously a partnership that's designed uh, to counter cyber and supply chain uh, breaches. There is a tendency of focusing on sort of these big incidents, right? The, the meatpacking incident, the colonial pipeline, and that's what gets uh, attention. But there are companies across the supply chain, both in defense and aerospace uh, and, and governments, right? I mean, uh, state and local governments. I think, it, you know, the Texas governments were, were hitting this last one. Uh, we've had Baltimore and a number of others. You know, ultimately, what's the way to ensure that supply chain security? And how do agreements like the one you guys struck with the Global Business Alliance help in trying to achieve that aim? Well, I think that you kind of drive at the, the primary point, right? So in each of these attacks, there was a vulnerability, and that vulnerability was a poor asset or a vendor in this latest case who wasn't as secure as they claimed. And, and most of these projects operate, most of these companies operate on attestation-only uh, approaches, which means I go to my vendor and I make them promise that they're really secure. Uh, that's say you should never trust an attestation. So to the heart of blocking attack, the Global Business Alliance represents the 200 largest foreign-owned domestic manufacturers. These companies through GBA have gotten together and they're saying, hey, we're going to take this to the next level. We want to make sure that we're going beyond attestation and we want to be able to communally really validate that our vendors are truly secure so they can close as many of these gaps as possible. Dimitri, let me bring you in in, in terms of what Justin said in terms of broader strategy and, and how at this point we the the White House has to move, right? I mean, we, we keep saying that they have to be tough. Uh, the last time you guys joined us, we talked about how that toughness can be in, in advance of the summit because there was a lot of hope that, they, they, or at least there was some hope, uh, maybe a little Pollyanna that, that the needle would actually move, right? How do we move next, especially as Justin said, right? Do we have as clear of an idea on what Russia holds dear uh, and what their strategy is, because ultimately that knowledge and understanding is what's important to drive your adversary to change course. Yeah, I don't think it's rocket science. We know what they care about. Uh, we know that gas and oil are a huge part of their uh, budget um, that funds a lot of the government services and military spending and the like. We know that sovereign debt is very important to them and sanctions on sales of that would have a devastating impact in their economy. So there is absolutely an enormous amount of leverage we can apply on them. The question is, are we ready to do that? Um, and are we ready to escalate, frankly? Um, because um, there is a chance that um, 
President Putin will feel like his back is to the wall and he has to lash out. There's also a question of the impact it will have on our allies in Europe and in Asia that uh, are dependent on Russian energy um, supplies. So, so it's not it's not an easy situation. But what we've argued is that we're reaching a point of no return. That the situation is becoming so bad. Um, in terms of impact on average American, on businesses all over this country, that President Biden will not have a choice but to act. Justin? Uh, so first of all, I would uh, echo what Dimitri just said in that we know some of the key pressure points for the Kremlin. I think when we focus too much on what can the U.S. do in cyberspace in response to a cyberspace action, we forget those other things, oil and gas, et cetera, that um, matter. The second thing, though, I, I would say, and I don't necessarily think this applies to the White House because they've been clear and sort of separating this out, but um, in the discourse generally about these recent events, I think we really have to stop grouping every single Russian cyber action into the same bucket. Um, and first of all, this is because the actor is different and the, in these cases. And of course, we can get into the blurry lines that exist in Russia between state and non-state actors, state use of proxies, deniability, security services, recruiting group, right? We can get into all of that. Um, but the fact of the matter is, right, Putin is not controlling literally every single cyber operation coming out of Russia. Uh, and so these distinctions matter, even if we're debating Putin's control over one group or lack thereof, that range of state involvement exists and we can't uh, ignore it if we're thinking about how to shape behavior. Um, and the second thing I would emphasize is that the kinds of hacks are different. And this is where I think we really actually have a huge problem in the discourse around this. Um, because ransomware is different than election interference, is different uh, than solar winds, which is espionage. Right, uh, which is not the kind of destructive thing we're talking about here. Um, and so even in recent commentary stuff I've been reading this morning, even when all of these cyber actions are bucketed as Russia cyber, um, and then we talk about deterrence of all of these things at once, you sort of lose the nuance of uh, the levers we can pull to try and affect Kremlin behavior. John, your your sense of all of this and what companies should be doing immediately to try to safeguard themselves, right? I mean, I understand that this is through compromised supply uh, supply chain, but, you know, a lot of this is sort of easy. And I mean, not, you know, to, to take uh, Dimitri's point, right? This isn't rocket science. We, we sort of know the, the human breakdown is usually the, the biggest one, right? Somebody opens the wrong kind of email, um, doesn't, observe, you know, basic security protocols. What what what's what what do we need to do because this wave is going to keep crashing over us uh, for a while longer before we can actually move that strategic needle, right? On a government to government level or a deterrence level. Yeah, well there's no doubt that uh, espionage type attacks are, are unlikely to stop, but certainly we could bring an end to these ransomware attacks. Uh, by, by applying economic pressure to Russia. But in the interim, companies need to get secure. And frankly, this is a really hard conversation for them to have internally because security is very expensive and their end users can't be trusted. Uh, folks are human, they make mistakes. So here's what they ought to do. First, they have to check that their vendors are secure. So all of these attacks really begin because some vendor 
uh, is vulnerable, some asset is vulnerable, and you have to do something more than attestation. You have to physically look at it, physically look at what they're doing to make sure that they're really secure. The second thing is, as best you can, you need to minimize the amount of control an individual end user has in their own environment. And this is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do, uh, both because of the complexity of working in a, in a modern environment, but also because that's expensive to go through the to go through the process. So companies are going to have to take that step, or they're going to be exposed. And, and I would say one thing: this is an important factor here. If we stop Russia from ever doing an attack again, which is unlikely, but even if we did that, somebody else would pick up the baton. Now that the bad guys know that they're going to get tens of millions of dollars in a payout, there'll be a new bad guy who will show up tomorrow to try this. Dimitri, you uh, spent, you know, before you came, uh, you know, full force into the policy world with the Silverado uh, Accelerator, you you were, um, you know, a key player in the cybersecurity inf- uh, ecosystem. Um, but, you know, talk a little bit about what companies need to do and how everybody needs to think about the space in order to improve their security. Because whatever we're talking about, again, whether it comes to deterrence uh, or dissuasion or anything else, at, at that government to government level, it's it's unlikely that a switch is going to flip and all of a sudden we're going to be in nirvana. And as John pointed out, and I think rightfully so, right, if it's not going to be Russian gangs, it's going to be some other kind of gang who's going to end up doing this. Yeah, and by the way, I wholeheartedly agree with John. In fact, thinking ahead, one thing I do worry a lot about, um, one actor, is North Korea. Um, even if we get somewhere with Vladimir Putin, even if we get progress on shutting these gangs down in Russia, we have no leverage with North Korea. Obviously, now a nuclear power, um, very reckless power. Um, they've uh, been incredibly good at leveraging cyber for cybercrime purposes. Um, stealing uh, money from bank accounts, stealing money for cryptocurrency exchanges, and then leveraging that to fund the regime activities like their ballistic missile programs. But um, uh, if they go full in on ransomware, and they've already been doing some ransomware attacks in the past, so it's not new to them at all, uh, that is going to be a huge, huge problem. Um, and, and to Justin's point earlier, I, I, I would say that it is very, very important when we're negotiating with Vladimir Putin and Russia more broadly that we remain focused. Of course, there's a lot of things we care about. We care about election interference. We care about destructive attacks like NotPetya that they have launched against Ukraine, that they've launched against the Olympics in South Korea. Uh, we care about um, uh, widespread espionage attacks like solar winds, although I would argue that th- those attacks did not violate uh, norms of behavior. Uh, but as I mentioned before, ransomware is what's impacting the average American. And we're not going to make progress with Putin on all of these issues. It's just an impossibility. Uh, we, we can barely hope for progress on one. And if we have to pick one, um, the one I would certainly pick uh, without any questions is ransomware. Now, in terms of what businesses should be doing, um, look, it's a very tough thing. And one of the biggest issues that we see now being exposed in these um, latest Kasey attacks is the impact on the small and medium businesses, the dentist office that are out, uh, dentist office that are out there, uh, real estate agents, libraries, and the like. Um, they don't have, of course, their own security personnel. They outsource it to managed service providers. And in this particular case, it was the managed service providers who got hit through the zero-day vulnerability in a software called Kaseya that they were using. So um, not a whole lot that these businesses can do um, to pre- prevent something like this. But obviously, if you're a large organization, um, if you're a defense contractor, if you're a Fortune 500 company, and you actually have IT staff, you have security staff, then taking the approach of someone is likely to infiltrate your network 
and you need to rapidly discover them and eject them. Using that as a uh, driving philosophy, as your guiding light, and then focusing on how do we rapidly identify someone who's inside who should not be there? What technologies do I need to bring to bear? What type of logging do I need to have? What type of hunting approaches I need to utilize to leverage speed, to be faster than the adversary, find them and eject them as quickly as possible. And I, I, I always find that speed element, right? I mean, we're getting better, but before it was normally how, how many months after the fact was it that you discovered it, right? So speed is a relative thing. I used to, uh, you know, uh, right. I mean, for, for, for a long time, it was like, oh, wow, we, we found it 120 days, you know, Hey, great for us. You know, we found it 120 days, uh, uh, you know, or, or only, uh, five months, uh, after, after a breach. Right. Uh, so, I mean, obviously the agility, uh, matter, uh, is very important. Um, Justin, well, from from your standpoint, right? I mean, we have two seasoned cyber practitioners, but you're also somebody who's experienced in in sort of covering the sector. What are some of the sort of the keys to getting this right at this point? Given that it it you know the, the ransomware problem in particular has has reached an epidemic proportion. Yeah, I would agree with um, what was just said, particularly about uh, investment in defenses, and as well the point uh, about supply chain issues. I think is significant as well. We've seen already this year where one sophisticated actor makes use uh, of a vector to get into a supply chain and then others start piling on uh, and using it as well. So that's a really important issue. And we've seen, of course, the Biden administration focused on the ICT supply chain. But I think, you know, as as we've been getting at, there's a lot more to be done when we're talking about ransomware, uh, both because of the nature of the attacks and the rising frequency uh, and growing severity. Um, of them, and then yes, I would I would agree as well, especially uh, with the point about being narrow in trying to engage Moscow on this issue set. Uh, you know, it's it's great to uh, have a list, for example, of sectors that we want to say are off limits. But again, you can't go in with any notion of uh, pretending that non-destructive espionage is not something we also do. You can't go in and say, you know, don't hack the dib, please. Like that's just not a realistic uh, thing to expect. So um, yeah, I think, you know, being very narrow and focused uh, is important. And certainly I would agree that ransomware is getting to the point where we really have to prioritize this at a higher level. John, what what's the line of what the government's got to do and what industry has to do, right? Because you're in that intersection of both uh, commercial and government in the national security space. What's that uh, boundary line? Well, it, it is really very fuzzy. The, the difference between hacking Lockheed and then hacking uh, the Air Force, I mean, in a lot of ways is nothing. The practical reality of what we need to see is we need to make security a competitive part of the proposal. So what goes on today is that the government bids something out and the, the lowest cost technically acceptable wins. Security, internal security, isn't ever measured as part of that competition. So the folks who do less security actually stand to win more contracts. So we need to have the government start to interject in a much bigger way than the CMMC and some of these other things, making security competitive. Because if that is a component of who gets selected to win the next contract, I promise you, 
uh, companies will become far more secure across the DIB. And as a result, our military sequels, our secrets will remain much more uh, secret. I think Justin makes a great point in saying, hey, you can you can draw red lines, but Putin's not going to stop attacking the DIB, the defense industrial base. I think that's true. I do think what is important, I have to credit the Biden administration on this, is by outlining those 16 uh, particular groups, what, he's, what he ought to be saying, hopefully what Russia's taking away, is that if you go here, there's going to be a negative outcome for you. It's not that there won't be negative outcomes everywhere, but we're going to treat attacks here a little bit differently, and you'll come to regret doing it. So hopefully we'll see the Biden administration uh, come home on the second part of that conversation. Um, I want to I, I want to get into a, a quick uh, in, the, in the last five minutes, sort of a broader Internet uh, question, especially given what's happening in Cuba. But, John, let me just follow up right for, for the audience and, and whether uh, they, they may not know about this. But but talk to us a little bit about the Global Business Alliance and what that agreement really means and why it can actually have significant knock-on advantages. Well, the big thing here, it's really the thrust of this is about really understanding what vendors are doing. So as uh, Dimitri rightly pointed out, right, a small company is going to have a very difficult time determining whether Kaseya or anybody else is truly secure. As it turns out, big companies have those same issues. And today, uh, really what they do is they run programs that are attestational. So you make your vendor promise that they're secure. What GBA is saying is, hey, we can, as a group, apply more security, ensure there's more security in our shared vendor base as a group. We will be more attractive uh, to organizations to actually making the right steps uh, together. So GBA is really going out there, taking a leadership role, uh, informing their subsidiary Sentinel and getting their 200 members together to say, no kidding, service providers, uh, attestations are over, security is here. Uh, Dimitri, is that going to be increasingly a key where uh, smaller companies sort of band together under the aegis of uh, a broader alliance in order to be able to improve security, right? I mean, I guess I guess if you're a big bank or a big organization and you can spend the money, you can do it. But if you're a smaller place, is this is this kind of a, a way to do that? I think it will have to be. There is no other way that we're going to solve the security poverty line, as it's been called in the industry, because the reality is that a lot of these smaller players are incredibly important to our national security. When you think about the defense industrial base, it's not just the biggest companies that you think of that are the prime contractors. It is a small and medium businesses that are supplying tiny parts that go into that carrier or submarine or the next jet, uh, gen fighter jet. And uh, those are companies sometimes with five people, sometimes with 10, no resources to spend on security, uh, barely any resources to spend on IT. So there's absolutely no way that you're gonna secure them without banding together and finding ways to protect them as a whole um, and leveraging the combined resources to, to pay for quality security services. Got it. Just a couple of minutes left. And Justin, I want you to start this off. And, and uh, Dimitri, uh, as somebody who was born in the Soviet Union, I think you've got to take a bite at this. And then, and then John, give us your sense as well. Authoritarian states have been working to throttle the internet. I think the Chinese recognize that the biggest uh, problem is, is a free internet, and that's going to cause people to get crazy ideas about freedom and democracy. And so they've been locking down and, and tightening that. Russia understands that the opposition movements uh, that were arrayed against Vladimir Putin was being uh, fueled by an open internet, which was remarkably robust. Uh, I should point out it you know, even in its weird way, it can be remarkably robust, but far more monitored uh, in China uh, now. And certainly there is the Great Firewall, even though I think many Chinese have managed to find ways around it. What we're seeing is Cuba's sort of extraordinary and extremely 
rapid collapse fueled in part by the internet, right? And the government now is looking to restrict the internet, but at this point, the cat may be well out of out of the bag. But it does seem to augur that authoritarians cannot forever control their populations, and that the minute that information is permeating these boundaries, eventually they collapse, just like the Soviet Union did with remarkable speed, just like we're seeing Cuba collapse with remarkable speed. And I think that that's the thing that worries the Chinese ultimately. Justin, start us off. What are you seeing in Cuba that suggests what the future of authoritarian states and the internet and cyber and how all of this plays into it ultimately? Yeah, there's a lot of focus of late in the U.S., of course, as a product of heavy focus writ large in foreign policy on China, and therefore a lot of focus on the so-called Chinese government internet model or, or the Chinese internet model. Um, but I think it's important to remember, right, there's a range of different ways states approach the internet, and you already highlighted some differences between China and Russia. I talk about more in the report. Um, the Chinese government relies, for example, on far more technical filtering than the Russian government. But I think when we're talking about internet shutdowns, we have to remember that if say deep packet inspection and something like the great firewall is a scalpel an internet shutdown is a hammer um there are lots of ways you can carry out internet shutdowns sometimes it's literally unplugging uh an internet service provider's building uh from the electrical grid sometimes it's actually doing filtering over a network um and it doesn't have to happen nationally. In India, for example, there have been hundreds and hundreds of internet shutdowns in the last couple of years, almost, or actually I think all of them at the regional or municipal level. There has not been a nationwide uh, shutdown, but that's something we have to remember, as you said, is when states don't have a lot of existing pre-configured capacity to filter internet traffic, and they see something start to happen online or be covered online, uh, that they don't like, the reaction for many authoritarians is we're going to pull out the hammer and we're just going to unplug uh, the internet altogether. Dimitri, as uh, a person born in a totalitarian state uh, who came uh, to a democratic future in the United States, I mean, how do you see the evolution of the internet? Right. I mean, my many decades ago, my my dad worked for Radio Liberty and Radio Free Europe as as somebody who was opposed, who was born and raised in Soviet Armenia and uh, was uh, somebody who was uh, not crazy about the regime uh, at the time. What what was what's what's your sense on how this is playing out in a, in a real world way and whether or not a complete firewall is something that's even possible in this day and age? You know, I'm not very pessimistic on this point, unfortunately. Um, I think Cuba is in a different situation because it's such an impoverished regime. They don't have the resources uh, of Russia or China. But authoritarian regimes that do have those resources, we have seen are incredibly capable at censorship, at balkanization, basically disconnecting them from the outside world and filtering content in a very, very aggressive fashion for their domestic population. China has been doing it for 20 plus years. Russia has gotten very aggressive on this in the last few years with, with a lot of success. So um, countries that are willing to put the effort into it, unfortunately, I think they will succeed. Thanks very much for that. Uh, very uh, depressing, if accurate, uh, reading, Dimitri. I was looking for something a little bit more optimistic, uh, but I- You, you I, know better I, than to, 
you know better than to run uh, to ask someone born in Russia to be optimistic. Yeah, ex- ex- exactly, exactly. We can get into Russian uh, fatalism and darkness uh, at some at some other time. Uh, John, your your sense on this to wrap up? Well, there is no better weapon in the world to bring freedom to people and prosperity than the truth. The internet, uh, despite all of its shortcomings, is still the best mechanism for delivering that. Uh, that's what we're watching in Cuba is very straightforward. Those people in the streets are Vaslav Havel and Nelson Mandela and Thomas Jefferson. So we need to support them, and we need to be working as a country in the Western world uh, to make sure that the, the attacks of uh, totalitarian regimes on the internet come to a close and that we, uh, like in the, the uh, Radio Free America days, are permeating the truth into uh, those places that the totalitarian governments try to close off. And I think more broadly and domestically, we need to remember that the bad guys know what a weapon the internet is. They know that the truth will bring them down. Uh, that So they're attacking our own use of the internet through misinformation and some of the things we've seen more recently. So uh, I think this ought to be the prime uh, mover for, for a lot of our foreign policy. And as we wrap up this uh, recording, uh, it appears that the Biden administration is going to launch a cross-government task force uh, that is going to be focused on figuring out ways to combat ransomware uh, attacks. So, guys, it was almost as though the administration was listening to this discussion. Um, Thanks very much uh, for joining us. Obviously, this is an issue we'll be uh, covering in uh, greater uh, depth and detail, including on uh, next week's program. John, a special thanks to you because you've got thunderstorms over your house. So that's the reason why your connection is not its its normal 100% clear self. So thanks uh, very much, Dimitri. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. Uh, always love having you guys on the program and you're welcome back anytime. Thanks again. Everyone is a contributor at Northrop Grumman and every day is an opportunity to help defend our nation and our allies. Visit our careers page at ngc.com to learn about joining the cyber and intelligence mission solutions team.